Welcome to ISS Corporate Solutions ESG Unlocked, a podcast that features engaging and insightful discussions with ESG experts around the world. I am your host, Pamela Mutumwa. On this episode, we will cover regional similarities and differences across an array of emerging governance themes in the U.S. versus EMEA. We will have two guests joining us, Valeriano Saucedo and Pablo Ijano, both from IS's corporate solutions advisory teams. Val advises publicly traded companies primarily located on the West Coast on corporate governance, executive compensation, and shareholder engagement issues. Prior to his role at ICS, Val worked as a senior executive compensation analyst on the North American research team at Glass-Lewis. Val holds a BA in anthropology from the University of California, Berkeley, and a Juris Doctor from the University of San Francisco. He is also currently based in San Francisco, California. Our other guest, Pablo, currently serves as a senior advisor specialized in corporate governance, executive compensation, and ESG advisory, covering the EMEA and APAC markets. Prior to joining ICS, Pablo worked at ISS Research as a corporate governance analyst in various capacities at ISS offices in London and Brussels. He is currently based in Madrid, Spain. Val and Pablo, welcome to ESG Unlocked. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Likewise. I'd like to begin this discussion with, you know, the hot topic of executive compensation, which, you know, of course, we are referring to publicly traded companies for our listeners who might be new to this concept. The term pay for performance is typically what companies use to describe their compensation plans, which from their perspective, it's, it's meant to align executives' actions with the company's success. With that, I do understand a company is expected to disclose the amount as well as the type of compensation that's being paid to its chief executive officer. And this also includes the chief financial officer and then three other most highly compensated executive officers. Is this standard for both EMEA and the U.S.? And what are the key differences between the two regions? Pablo, let's start with you sharing the EMEA perspective. Sure. Happy to start off. When it comes to executive and to a certain extent also director's compensation, perhaps the first difference we clearly identify between the EMEA and the U.S. markets relates to the reporting requirements. And then it continues with pay design. And of course, the most noticeable difference of all is actually the quantum. Here within Europe, we also have to navigate through many jurisdictions with different requirements and standards in terms of transparency, practices, and quant levels. But generally speaking, in EMEA, the majority of the countries follow a realized pay reporting style, meaning that companies would disclose compensation actually paid to the executive officers during the year, including salary, pension, perks, bonus earned during the year, and long-term incentive valued at besting. So basically, in Europe, the disclosure of executive remuneration represents the executive's take-home pay. I think this actually differs from the U.S. reporting requirement that follows a granted pay definition. Am I correct, Bob? Yes, that's, that's exactly right. So when we're talking about granted pay, that's usually the compensation that is awarded and it's valued at the time of the grant, right? So that's kind of the regime that we have in the United States. It represents the grant date for value of a compensation package, and it will often differ from what an executive actually earns. 
that's because unlike, say, the way that most people think about compensation in terms of receiving a W-2, which represents usually your base salary and perhaps a cash bonus, executives, for the most part, get paid in variable compensation, meaning that what an executive is promised today may not be what they actually get a year from now or three years from now, depending on service or performance conditions. That said, one of the new reporting requirements under Dodd-Frank that the SEC finalized as of the end of last year was the requirement that U.S. companies disclose pay versus performance. Under the new rule, companies are required to disclose the total compensation of certain executive officers, including the principal executive officer, which you usually think of as the CEO, and alongside certain financial information and, importantly, something called compensation actually paid. And under this reporting requirement, compensation actually paid refers to the amount of executive compensation that an individual has received during a specific year. And that includes realized or vested compensation. So compensation actually paid is intended to provide shareholders with a different view of how much value executives actually received or didn't receive over the last several several years. Okay, that's interesting. So what about the differences when it comes to equity within the compensation plan? Here in EMEA, there is an expectation that those awards are actually fully performance-based with a clear link between compensation per, comp- uh, company's performance and the vesting of the awards. It is important uh, to know that here in Europe, time-based only or uh, stock options equity awards are not very common and normally are not supported by investors unless performance hurdles and or certain underpins actually apply. Moreover, there is a general expectation that awards must not pass at least with a minimum of three years from grant. And in some markets like in the UK or the Netherlands, expectations are that those awards should not become available until five years from grant. So in some instances, companies will either have to increase performance period to four or five years, or or instead companies may have to add additional holiday periods on top of the performance periods to meet the minimum of five years. Okay, so for EMEA, they generally emphasize performance in order to be awarded equity compensation. What about when we analyze quantum differences? In terms of quantum, uh, whilst CO uh, base salaries are broadly comparable between the US uh, and, uh, and EMEA, it is clear and generally acknowledged that overall pay opportunities, especially those affecting variable compensation, are significantly larger in the US than in Europe. For instance, uh, the average pay of an S&P 500 CEO was around 18.3 million in 2021. And this is nearly four times more than a FTSE 100 CEO with an average of 5.3 million. Right, so base salary is comparable, but the differences tend to lie in how the U.S. executives' variable portion is much higher. So I think it's worth noting that companies in Europe, when they do try to propose higher compensation packages for their executives to compete with the U.S., I mean, really mostly to retain talent, right? When they do propose higher compensation packages, investors tend to push back quite heavily on that. Val, what's your take on this huge gap between European versus U.S. executive compensation? Yeah, so it's it's true that executive compensation, particularly CEO pay in the U.S., is quite high compared to other markets. And this presents other unique challenges. So the first is that competition for executive talent is quite fierce in the U.S., particularly in the Bay Area, 
where many of the tech companies are known for providing some of the highest compensation packages across all industries. This has led to a bit of a ratcheting effect where executive compensation has increased as the demand and competition for executive talent has also increased. The second unique challenge is how to explain or justify that high quantum to the various stakeholders, including both shareholders, which of course it's important for companies to keep their shareholders happy, and the public, which is interesting because public sentiment can honestly impact a company's share price. So if we go back to Dodd-Frank for a moment, the SEC formalized the pay ratio disclosure rule in 2017, and that required U.S. companies to disclose their CEO compensation as a ratio of the compensation of the company's median employee. Oh, that's interesting. I was actually looking at the top 10 U.S. CEO payout numbers just the other day, and those numbers are significantly high. For example, a CEO that came in at number five, this is number five, received over $122.6 million dollars. So I can absolutely see how having to disclose the ratio of the median employee compensation against the CEOs would be quite startling to many folks. Exactly. Something that I would like to cover that I think a lot of our listeners would benefit from getting clarity on is how even in some cases where there is a controversial situation that is actively unfolding or that may have recently occurred, such as you know major layoffs, And then soon after that, we find out that the CEO received millions in a bonus or compensation of some kind, and then it turns into a public uproar. So I think our listeners would like to, would benefit, right, from understanding that in cases like this, it's typically because the CEO is being awarded some of the compensation that is not tied to performance, which can still be a significant number, right? Yeah, that is correct. Obviously, there is always a component, which is the fixed compensation, which includes the base salary and some perks. And then there is the variable compensation, which typically includes uh, short-term incentives, bonuses, or the long-term incentives or equity grants, that they are generally subject to some sort of performance conditions. So obviously, in the event of an unforeseen situation, actually, those variable components might eventually not pay out because of that lack of not hitting those those targets. In any events, obviously, I guess the boards and remuneration committees, sometimes they, they actually also have some sort of discretion to determine whether they would allow for the vesting of equity or for certain bonuses to still pay out, mm-hmm. regardless of the actual final performance conditions. They have to be really justified, right, in terms of clearly uh, explain why such bonuses, despite having a poor financial performance, for example, uh, they need to be still be paid. Got it. So I was doing some reading and came across some articles that criticize how some executives getting large payouts in an unethical manner, really to do with compensation packages that are leveraging ESG related incentives. They're setting certain ESG goals that if they reach, then, you know, they'll be awarded a certain amount in in compensation. But apparently some of these ESG targets are very attainable basically it's it's not a challenge at all easy to reach what are your observations when it comes to esg metrics starting to feature in compensation packages yeah well certainly we actually also observe a clear trend where esg metrics are being incorporated more and more into both stis and ltis and for example here in emea i think amongst uh, the main stock 600 companies approximately 80 percent of them already have uh, ESG metrics in either the STIs or the LTIs. 
up from approximately 63% in 2021. In the US, I think the level of adoption is slightly lower than in Europe, with uh, approximately 40% of the S&P 500 employing uh, ESG metrics in 2022, up from 30% in 2021. That is not definitely an easy undertaking to select the right ESG metrics as well as set the right target. So at least it's not as easy as with financial metrics where most of us are more familiar. So in the event of non-financial information to be considered in the accepted compensation, and this obviously includes um, ESG criteria, so generally they, they, they are considered relevant and adequate as long as they actually reward for a certain level of performance. And in this regard, the general expectation around ESG metrics to actually effectively reward executives is that, best, first of all, they actually need to be fully transparent and they need the company needs to demonstrate a clear link to the strategy. And then obviously, to, to the extent possible, those ESG metrics needs to be measurable and quantifiable with clear sliding scale set of targets, as, for example, companies also do with financial, uh, with financial metrics. And then ultimately, they actually have to be truly uh, at risk. At this point, very hard for everyone to evaluate whether certain metrics and targets that companies are, are using in their variable compensation are appropriately, let's say, designed as more and more companies actually implement those metrics. And then as more and more compensation and payouts derives from those metrics, we will be able to assess by way of looking at how much historically certain metrics are paid out. So if, for example, mm -hmm. historically we observe that specific metrics continuously achieve or uh, pay out at maximum opportunity, then that's giving us a red flag that there must be some sort of, that, that needs more rigor in terms of the goal setting process, right? Yeah, that makes sense. The fact that this, this is a new approach to compensation incentive planning, it, it makes sense that we need some time to assess, to have data to actually see some trends and make more informed analysis on it. Well, what's your opinion in terms of, you know, this particular topic within the ESG and compensation landscape for the U.S.? So the challenges that companies face are very similar to the ones that Pablo laid out for European companies in that a lot of times the metric selection is kind of one of the biggest barriers because metric selection in terms of ESG is going to be very industry specific. And on top of that, it's going to be very company specific, whereby a company's sort of maturity level and their demand from their investors regarding ENS, it's going to really vary. And on top of that, a company's specific environmental footprint will also, in certain instances, dictate the metric selection in terms of, of ENS. And then on top of that, most of the time, while you know Pablo went over some of the stats for how much adoption there is now in terms of ENS metrics in, in the United States in compensation programs, Oftentimes, we're seeing the ENS metrics appear in the short-term incentive program, so goals that are typically set over one year. And then beyond that, the weighting of those metrics is typically very small right now. You know, you don't see companies setting 50% of their cash bonus based on ESG metrics. You're seeing mostly companies that would have 5, 10, 15% of their bonus based on ESG metrics or the ESG metrics perhaps serve as a modifier to some other small portion of, of the award. So 
very company specific. The the metrics right now are, are quite small. So even if we don't have a lot of data on you know the goal rigor and how these metrics are actually paying out, the, we we started the question with perhaps about whether these metrics are easier to hit than say financial metrics. Even if that is the case, they are typically based on they they typically only dictate a smaller portion of an executive's of, of an executive's bonus right now. So mm-hmm. I think that this is a evolving field. And over the next couple of years, as more and more companies continue to adopt ESG metrics, you know, we will see some developments here. Absolutely. That makes sense. And it also seems tough to ensure executives are rewarded fairly in both the good and the bad times as tough decisions must be made by leaders when there are no guarantees. And of course, there's no crystal ball to know how the market will react at all. However, at the end of the day, it's the board's decision, right, to create the measures that do assess the CEO's effectiveness. And speaking of the board, I'd actually like to transition our conversation to the next part of this episode. And we're going to be talking about board skills, right, which is another layer of a company armoring itself to thrive in the long term. And by doing so, it has to have capable and reliable directors making up its board, making the right and tough decisions. On the previous ESG Unlocked episode, the topic of cybersecurity risk literacy being a high demand board school came up. Now, my question for you guys is, what are some of the board trends when it comes to skills and demand that you observe? Pablo, let's start with you with um, your observations in EMEA. Sure, uh, definitely. I would say that uh, infosec risk expertise, at least for now, is not a highly demanded skill in EMEA as it is perhaps in the US, approximately only 50% of the stock 600 companies have at least one director with information security skills, and 27% of the companies two or more directors, as opposed to 85% and 66% respectively in the S&P 500. I would say that in EMEA, perhaps, the most needed expertise at the moment are those related to climate and sustainability. Recently, the long-awaited CSR directive mandates that companies have to disclose descriptions of the role of the management and supervisory bodies with regard to sustainability matters, and also the expertise and skills to fulfill this role. Companies will have to demonstrate that their board of directors have the appropriate competencies and skill set to design, deliver, and execute climate change strategies and sustainability programs in line with the demands of shareholders, regulators, and and other stakeholders. Yeah, so from the U.S. perspective, the specific in-demand skills for directors can vary somewhat depending on a company's industry, their size, their time since IPO, and of course, the company's specific strategic priorities. But there are certain universal skills that every board will need. For example, every board needs industry-specific experts, financial experts, etc. More recently, as we're focusing on cyber Boards have been seeking directors with expertise in technology and specifically cybersecurity and information security. Because these are emerging governance issues, they can, in many cases, require board-level oversight. So as information security remains an area of focus for investors and regulators, and also especially the general public, particularly as data management and data privacy issues start to take center stage, The prevalence of directors with information security skills in the U.S. has been growing broadly. If you look at the Russell 3000, more than 50% 
of companies in the Russell 3000 have at least one director with information security experience. If you focus in on just the S&P 500, which makes sense because you know overall companies in the S&P 500 tend to have better governance. Actually, 84% of the S&P 500 boards have at least one director with information security experience. And actually, the average number of directors on the on S&P 500 boards that have cyber or information security experience is three. So you have kind of a critical mass of, of directors that have information security experience when you focus in on the S&P 500. Mm-hmm. Another quality about the board on top of its skill set is its composition, right, from a social perspective. You know, typically when a board has diverse representation, a company, you know, inherently armors itself with diverse insights, right, from different cultural backgrounds, life experiences, wisdom that comes with whether it's from race and ethnicity or even gender. And the combination is vitally important for sound decision making. Diversity does bring in unique insights. I was reading a recent white paper co-authored by a colleague, actually, and it had some interesting insights about the trends in the U.S., for example, how the utility sector far outpaces all other sectors in terms of the proportion of women in CEO roles and board leadership positions as well. What are you guys seeing here? Diversity has been and continues to be an important issue in the United States in fact, the number of companies disclosing board-level diversity increased by 55% so far this year. This may be due in part to the NASDAQ board diversity listing standards that the SEC approved in 2021, and they went into effect in 2022. So the NASDAQ rule requires U.S. issuers to have at least two diverse directors, including one who self-identifies as female and one who self-identifies as an underrepresented minority or member of the LGBTQ plus community. Foreign issuers, and Pablo can maybe speak to this, but foreign issuers can meet the NASDAQ requirements by having two female directors. So they don't necessarily need to meet the other diversity requirement. But the NASDAQ rule also requires companies to disclose in a standardized board diversity matrix, the composition of the board against certain predefined categories which include gender, race, ethnicity, and again, LGBTQ plus identity. The disclosure does not require identification of individual directors by name, but simply just an aggregated disclosure. Interestingly, again, foreign issuers can apply a broader definition of diversity and report just the number of individuals who self-identify as underrepresented in their home country, rather than using the standardized categories applicable to U.S. companies. So you mentioned sort of industry-specific information about diversity, and it is quite interesting to see the breakdown of diversity by industry. So in the United States, if you're looking at directors that self-identify as ethnic minorities, within the Russell 3000, actually the semiconductors and semiconductor equipment industries tend to be the most diverse, and equity REITs tend to be the least diverse. So it is quite interesting that the diversity can vary so much by industry. Yeah, absolutely. I can see that being a factor. Pablo, what are your observations in the EMEA region when it comes to diversity? Yeah, gender diversity is, we know, uh, a very important topic here in EMEA as well, with different requirements and recommendations actually across many of the European markets. The good thing is that in November 2022, there was a directive again put together in Europe 
on gender balance in company boards. And this is just aiming to promote gender balance in decision making at the highest levels. So uh, the, the, this directive will require that at least 40% of the non-executive directors or 33% of all board positions, this is including both executives and non-executive directors, occupied by the underrepresented sex by the, the end of June 2026. But here, actually, small and middle-sized companies will be excluded of the scope of this directive. It's interesting because, actually, with regards to other type of diversity, like race or, uh, or ethnicity, only in the UK actually currently exist some sort of guidance or recommendations. In the rest of Europe, for now, that currently doesn't exist. In the UK, in particular, only affecting the 50 companies. They actually have to start providing meaningful disclosure regarding their performance against uh, the parking review targets. So basically, what they, this, what they demand is basically for 1,500 and 250 companies, uh, they should include, include at least one director from uh, an ethnic minority by uh, the end of 2021 in 1,500 and 2024 for 1,250. But as I said earlier, actually, uh, unfortunately, there is no uh, any additional considerations to other than gender diversity in in other uh, continental European markets at the moment. No, oh, that's interesting. I think this was very insightful. We got to learn a lot more about executive compensation for both regions, you know, the board skills and um, board diversity trends that are happening right now. Thank you both, Val and Pablo, for, for joining us here at ESG Unlocked. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pam. This was ESG Unlocked, brought to you by ISS Corporate Solutions. And as your host, I appreciate you listening in and encourage you to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues, as our mission is to help you better understand the ESG landscape. And please subscribe to get an alert for new episodes and follow ISS Corporate Solutions on LinkedIn for webinars and insightful thought leadership pieces as we continue to explore and unlock the value of ESG.